0: We are in the middle of a series called Mark the Servant King, and over the past four weeks we've been walking through uh, the book of Mark and taking a look at the life, the person, and the ministry of Jesus through Mark's eyes as he reveals to us Jesus as the Servant King. And we're going to continue that today, Uh, and we're going to jump into chapter 2 looking at verses 18 through 22. But uh, you know, in life, there are just some things that don't mix, right? Uh, maybe you're thinking that about the person you're sitting next to, but, you know, uh, oil and water, they don't mix. There are things that when put together, words, phrases that are apparent contradictions, we call those things oxymorons, right? Anybody know any oxymorons? Yeah. Okay. Anyway. <laughs> Oxymorons. They apparent contradictions when they go together. I just wanted to take a look at a few of these types of, uh, of oxymorons. First one we have is uh, terribly pleased. Have you ever been terribly pleased, right? Uh, here's another one. Uh, definitely maybe. You ever invited somebody somewhere and I definitely maybe be there? It's a definite maybe that I won't come. Uh, definitely maybe. Here's the next one child proof. Childproof. Nothing is childproof, right? It's just a marketing term that they invented uh, to get us to buy their stuff. Nothing is childproof. Here's another one: uh, pretty ugly, pretty ugly. Yeah, that person is pretty ugly. That house is pretty ugly, right? Uh, temporary tax increase. Temporary tax increase. You know that's a joke, right? Nothing is ever. They get you used to it, and then they keep temporarying it up. Uh, here's my favorite: airline food. Airline food. Have any of you ever flown along on a flight where they actually serve you meals? Oh, man, they're horrible. Absolutely. First class is okay. I've only done that once, and even that was suspect. Uh, airline food. Uh, here's my favorite one. Government efficiency. <laughs> government efficiency. I don't even know what that is, right? It just doesn't exist. Here's the last one. Uh, religious Christians. Religious Christians. doesn't mix. Really, there's no such thing as a religious Christian. Or there shouldn't be. Right? They're like oil and water. They just, they're apparent contradictions. And we get our word religion from the Latin word religere, which means to bind up uh, or to tie up. It means to bind or to tie for the purpose of our example today, our discussion, I should say, I want to give us a working definition of religion. Because if I were to pull you here in the audience and say, what is religion? You would all give me a definition, and it would be based on your understanding and, and your, your background and all of that. But I want to give us just a, a definite working definition that we can all uh, hopefully agree upon for our discussion today. Here's what religion is, all right? Religion is man's attempt to know God by means of certain rules and regulations designed to restrain evil and demonstrate good religion is man's attempt to know god by means of certain rules and regulations designed to restrain evil and demonstrate good it's it's man's attempt If you think about it, there are really only two belief systems in the world, two two religions, if you want to say like that, in the entire world. You say, there's no way. There are so many more. I could think of five off the top of my head. Islam, Buddhism, Taoism, right, Confucianism, Shintoism, Hinduism, Sikhism, Baha'i. I I mean, you name it, they, they exist. Yeah, they do, but they all ask one question. They all come down to one way of viewing God or viewing the divine, and it's this question. What do I have to do to please God? What do I as a human being have to do in my life to be pleasing to God? Whomever that is, who, whatever you define God is, but who, what do I have to do to please him? You say, well, what about the atheist? Well, the atheist is their own God. So the question is, what do they have to do to please themselves? Right? Because they are effectively their own God. That's the first question. It's a religion of do. What must I do to please God predicated on our ability, our, our, uh, capacity to be moral enough and good enough and maintain that list of rules and regulations. What must I do? Here's the second belief system. This is where Christianity falls, and it asks this question. Rather than what must I do, the question is what has God already done? What has God already done for me? A religion of done versus a religion of do. You see, at its very core, religion is opposed to Christianity. Christianity. Religion is opposed to the gospel. The story goes that a few years ago, there was, many years ago I should say, there was a a, uh, conference of of the top theological minds around the world that came together and they entered into a a debate. And the debate was this. The part of the question was, uh, what is it that separates Christianity from every other religion in the world? What is the differentiating factor? If we were to sit down and and write this out, what is it? And they're they're going back and forth and pontificating and all those things. And the story has it that C.S. Lewis, right, the great uh, apologist who was once an atheist that converted to a Christian comes into the room, hears the discussion, Ask what's the question, and they ask him, what is it that separates Christianity from every other religion in the world, every other belief system? C.S. Lewis, without missing a beat, says it's easy, it's one word, it's grace. It's grace. That's, that's the one differentiating factor. No other belief system has a concept of grace. What is grace? The unearned, unmerited favor of God. The proclamation to humanity. Not what must you do, but this is what God has already done for you without you deserving it. To take it one step further, we can say that grace is not just a concept. Grace is not a theological belief. Grace is not a theological idea. Grace is actually a person. The Bible tells us that law was given to Moses, but grace and truth came in Jesus. That grace is Jesus. Religion is opposed to the idea of grace. Why? Because religion is what? Man's attempt to know God by means of a certain rules and regulations that restrain evil and demonstrate good. It's man's ability, man's capacity. Grace enters the scene. Jesus comes onto the scene and says, it's not about your ability. It's about my ability. And grace makes nothing of man and his ability and everything of Jesus and his sacrifice on the cross. Amen. Religion is fundamentally opposed to that. Religion hates Jesus. Religion hates Jesus. Why? Because it's all about man's attempt. Whereas grace is all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. This this understanding for us today is will frame the passage that we read. It's really a question that Jesus Himself answers. As we're going to look at Matthew eight two eighteen through twenty two, Jesus is is coming off the um, calling of Levi, the tax collector, as His disciple, as we read about last week. And these religious people ask Him a question, and the question is this: I want to phrase it like this: What's the difference between religion and the gospel? What's the difference between religion and the gospel? If you were asked that, are you religious, what would your response be? Or do you believe in the gospel? What's the difference? I want to give you three things today that just are uh, three Differences between religion and the gospel based off the way that Jesus answers the question. Jesus answers this question by giving three analogies. It's a rather abstract answer and only a Jesus-like way in which he does something. He gives you an answer, but it causes you to think and dissect and apply it to your life. So let's jump in. If you have your Bibles, go with me to Mark chapter 2. We'll look at verses 18 through 22, picking up right where we left off last week. Here's what it says. Once when John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, some people came to Jesus and asked, why don't your disciples fast like John's disciples and the Pharisees do? Jesus replied, do wedding guests fast while celebrating with the groom? Of course not. They can't fast while the groom is with them, but someday the groom will be taken away from them and then they will fast. Besides, who would patch old clothing with new cloth? For the new patch would shrink and rip away from the old cloth, leaving an even bigger tear than before. And... No one puts new wine into old wineskins, for the wine would burst the wineskins, and the wine and the skins would both be lost. New wine calls for new wineskins. That's Jesus' answer. If you're like me, when you read that, you're like, I don't think he answered the question. (laughs) You know, like, he just gave me wedding, clothes, wine. I don't know. He's giving them an analogy. He's causing them to think. You see, Jesus is posed with this question, following him calling Levi as a tax collector. And what these people are asking, they're religious people. They are making an observation. They're saying, hey, John the Baptist, the guy who preceded you that announced your ministry, he has disciples. Hey, they are fasting. The Pharisees, the religious teachers of the day, the pastors, they're fasting too. But Jesus, we've made an observation. And we see that you and your disciples, they're they're not fasting. Why is this? If you notice what they're doing is, is they are they are focusing in on the behavior of the disciples. Why are they not fasting like we fast? Like the, the spiritual people fast? Jesus has an ability to see beyond the question because down to the motivation, because their motivation isn't pure. Their motivation isn't one of just inquiry, like we just we saw this, Jesus, we want to know. No, no, no. They're wanting to point out a flaw in Jesus, they're wanting to expose a crack. In the ministry of Jesus, the, 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 the teaching of Jesus. See, their question assumes and expects a negative answer. They feel like they've caught Jesus in something. Because they just don't like Jesus. Why? Because he's healing. He's forgiven people's sins. He's just straight up drawing a crowd. And he's doing nothing like they think he should do it. He's not fasting. right? He's breaking all kinds of laws and stuff. He's just, he, he, they don't like him. They hate him. And then Jesus gives them this answer. In these three analogies, and he he digs into it. The first analogy he gives them is of the wedding guest, and what he's telling us here is the first thing that's different between religion and the gospel. Religion brings condemnation. The gospel brings celebration. Religion brings condemnation. The gospel brings celebration. If you'll remember last week, and if you weren't with us last week, go on to the website faithcommunity.co and watch Mark Part 4. But we saw that Jesus calling Levi, the tax collector, the guy who was the biggest sinner in the city, who did not deserve Jesus to call him. He follows Jesus. Then what does he do? He throws a party, right? A big old party. Uh, an all-nighter like Kager party. And he, he invites his friends who the Bible says are disreputable sinners whom which there were many in Jesus' following to other tax collectors, prostitutes. And then he invites Jesus and his disciples. And what does Jesus do? He goes, right? He goes to the party. And then all the religious people gather around, look in, and they start to do what religion does best. They start to condemn. Why? They start to look at the behavior of these people. They, they ask the disciples this question, how is it that Jesus can eat with such scum? How did they arrive at the determination that these people were scum. Well, I'll tell you, they looked at their behavior. They observed what these people did and didn't do, and that's what told them these people are scum. See, religion brings condemnation. You hear heard it in the question in verse eighteen. Why aren't your disciples fasting? Fasting it reduced their, beha- their themselves, the disciples, to the behavior. That's what religion does. It reduces us to our behavior because that's what it can only do is make a decision or a determination on the basis of what we do and what we don't do. And in the process, our value becomes nothing more than the sum total of our actions or the sum total of our inactions. And that is anti-gospel. The gospel does not value us. The gospel does not say that we are good or bad on the basis of what we do or don't do. The gospel says, I recognize that what you're doing is bad and is sinful, but I value you because I created you and I've sent Jesus to give my life for you. Religion can't do that. It can only condemn. It can only point out the behavior. And these religious people, they determine the value of others on the basis of behavior alone. They see the scum and they say, we are obviously better than them because we don't do what they do and we do things that they don't do. Therefore, we're better. Therefore, we're deserving. Therefore, we are righteous. if you remember Jesus' response to them, he says, hey, look, I didn't come for people who don't need a doctor. I didn't come for people who think they're righteous. I came for people who know they're sinners. That's what he tells them. I didn't come for people who condemn they condemn out of a, a sense of, of self-righteousness or being indignant towards others on the behavior, basis of behavior alone. See, religion condemns, but the gospel brings celebration. And Jesus brings them to an analogy of a celebration. And he asks them this question. He says, how many of you, when you go to a wedding, do you fast? I mean, how many of you, when you guys go to a wedding, are you like, I'm going to fast, right? No. <laughs> the only reason you went to the wedding is to get to the reception. Right to eat the free food. That's well, why you bought a gift to get a meal. Right? You're not going to turn down the food that you just sat through a wedding that was way too long and you didn't care about. Right? You you went because of the food or the fellowship. Well, I don't know whatever you call it. The food. Jesus, said, you you didn't come to this wedding and fast? No, no, no. You're going to celebrate. You're going to. It's going to be a time of joy. See the the rabbis taught. Because in that culture, weddings were, were culturally significant, highly significant. They would come out, they would, they would celebrate, it would it'd be so full of joy. These two people coming together to start their lives out. It was a cultural celebration. So the rabbis taught that, hey, if there was an observance of a law that interfered with the celebration and the joy of the moment and the wedding celebration, temporarily they didn't have to observe that law. Why? Because the celebration of the wedding is what was most important. So Jesus is saying, look, hey, you're at a party, you're celebrating, you're not going to fast. But there's a detail in there that he throws that completely flips the analogy upside down. He says this, it's not just the wedding reception. What it is, is that when the bridegroom is present, the bridegroom, not just the bride, the bridegroom. And making that one statement, it caught their attention really quick because what Jesus was claiming to be was God. You see, how is that? Because throughout the entire Old Testament, the imagery of God as a husband is used towards his people, Israel. Jesus is Jewish. He's talking to his Jewish brothers and sisters. And they understood God, their father, as a bridegroom to his people. You see it played out all throughout the Old Testament. God giving himself for his people. And they, they go off and they do crazy things and they experience exile and punishment. And God rescues his, bri- his bride and brings him back. And this is back and forth, back and forth. And you get to the book of Hosea. And you call that God calls the prophet Hosea to go marry a prostitute named Gomer. Right? Why? Because Gomer represents Israel, his people, who keep running away from him. And God says to Hosea. You are my representative. I want you to go marry Gomer. And he does. And then Gomer has some children with Hosea. And then she runs away and becomes a prostitute again. And God comes back to Hosea and says, go and buy her back. And we see the prophet Hosea going throughout the streets of the city and buying back his wife. He paid for what was already his. Why? Because God is the bridegroom who will give his life for his people. So what Jesus is telling them is, hey, look, I am the bridegroom. I am God. I am the one who, who has been prophesied to you. I'm the one that, with all your rituals that you're trying to be good enough for. And I want to let you know something. I am celebration. I am joy. And now is the time to celebrate because I am here and I am with you. Because the gospel brings celebration. Because when someone comes to know who God is and becomes a Christ follower, the Bible says that all of heaven rejoices. Do you get that? There are over 6 billion people on the planet today. But when one person in in the middle of absolute nowhere around the world, one person prays a prayer to receive God and follow him, God hears that prayer and all of heaven rejoices that if you have made that decision, that if you are following Christ, that God and the heavenly host rejoiced over you. Why? Because the gospel is celebration. Because we celebrate when people come in. But religion can't do that. Religion can only condemn. Religion can only look at someone's behavior and say, eh, it's not good enough. Mm, You're never going to make it. That's sin. you got to fix that. Reduces people to their behavior. But Jesus is saying, look, I'm here. It's time to celebrate. And I'm here to do something entirely new. And that brings us right into... The second analogy that he gives them, and he talks about clothing, right? And it leads us to our second point, which is this, that religion is advice, but the gospel is news. Religion is advice, the gospel is news. Do you understand the difference between advice and news? Let's say you come and and you're talking to me and you're just sharing your heart, right? You didn't come to me to ask me for anything other than just to listen. But while you're talking and you tell me your problem, this is most likely how my brain functions anyway. I want to start giving you advice. Well, you can fix it like this. You could do this or you could do this. You're like, I didn't even ask you for advice. I asked you for a listening ear, right? Advice is sometimes wanted and sometimes not. But advice only can address the situation. But here's the thing about advice. Advice never changes you advice has no power to fix your situation unless you do it and then there's no guarantee because you could have been talking to an idiot right and they gave you really bad advice but that's all that advice can do yep it's a problem try this that's advice the gospel is news news is what news is something you've never heard before the word news, if you do a study on it, and you look at the etymology of the word news, it goes back to where it was the plural of the word new. Back until like the 14th century, it's the plural of the word new. News, it's new. It's something you haven't heard. It has the potential to change you, to change your scenario, to change your situation, to change your mindset. The gospel is news. News has power. The gospel is, in effect, good news. That's what it means first week in this series. If you missed it, go watch it. We talked about the word gospel, that it is good news. It's not advice. Jesus says, Hey, look, after we do this whole party thing, how many of you have an old shirt that's got holes in it? And what you do to compensate for that, you go buy a new shirt and you cut that new shirt up and you patch the old shirt with the new shirt. He said, you wouldn't do that. Why? Cause that's crazy. Because eventually, what's going to happen is, is that patch is going to pull away from the new, and it's going to be left with a, big hole, a bigger hole in the older by the time it's done. What Jesus is saying to them is look, I, I didn't come to fix anything, I didn't come to patch anything. This message that I'm preaching, the healing that I'm doing, the deliverance that I'm providing, and the forgiveness of sins is all pointing to something new. I did not come to reinforce your system. I actually came to fulfill it and give you something better. I came not to fix your life or patch your life. I came to give you my life. I am the new garment. I am the bridegroom. That's what he's telling them. I believe they're understanding this. They're listening to this. I am new. You need to understand that. See, because religion, advice, like I said, it has no power to change you. Religion in and of itself is impotent. It has no power to change you. It has no power to make you brand new. The only power that religion has is to diagnose you. That's why it says in the Bible that the law that God gave is like looking in a mirror. It exposes you, but it cannot change you. It is powerless to change you. I thought I'd illustrate this for you. Is that okay? Yes. Like, I don't do illustrations, but I'm going to try one. <laughs> right? And then you just Facebook me or something and tell me if it worked. And if you didn't <laughs> like it, just say you did. Okay? <laughs> I had this shirt here. I want you to think of this shirt as, as a representation of our lives. Right? Our lives without Christ. Our lives without, without the gospel. Without grace that if I were to put this shirt on and to come here and preach in this shirt, you'd all be wondering what the world was going on, right? Like Lauren, obviously your wife did not tell you that this shirt is horrible. I think it, it is represent, representative of our life. It, throughout life, we go through things that scar us, that wound us. We engage in things that are sinful. We have sin in our life, and it leaves its mark on us. It's an indelible mark. Sometimes, mo, I would say the majority of time, people can't see these marks. They're, they're, they're internal. They're deep within. They're things that we don't tell anybody about. But we have them. We compensate for them, but we have them. Religion comes along, and it does what it does best. It condemns, but it points out. It does its job, and it says, hey, look. Have you seen that? Have you seen the shirt that you're wearing? You see that hole right there? Yeah. Uh, Yeah, I knew it was there. You better fix that. I understand. Yeah. Did you, did you see this here? Yeah. You need to stop that. You need to quit because it's not going to lead you down the right path. It's going to ruin you. You need to stop. Yeah, I understand. Do you see that right here? Yeah, you need to quit that too. That's bad too. Yeah. And by the time you're, you're done, you're like, yeah, I, I knew all those things, but I don't, I don't know what to do. Really, he says, hey, don't worry about it. Let me patch you up. Let me fix you up. That thing I told you about, here's what we're going to do. Stop. Right, I'm gonna give you some advice. Don't do that. Okay, right? You you need to quit this. Okay, I'm gonna quit. Right? Gives you this patch. Hey, you just you really you need to be nicer over here. Don't be a jerk. Okay, be a jerk. Pretty soon, you're walking around. You got all these patches, right? And you feel pretty good. You patched up your life, man. It looks good, right? But we see the inherent problem. The advice is never sticky enough. It doesn't work, right? And pretty soon what happens is is that something comes along and it renders it even more useless and you don't even, you don't even have a big enough patch to fix it. And then what you're doing is you, you, you try to f- scamper around, you know what I mean? And, just, and you're, you're stressed out trying to fix your life and so you're tr- putting patches together, asking people, just trying, to, just trying to make it, you know? And pretty soon what happens is is all the patches fall off, right? They're gone, They're not here, When they fall off, just like Jesus said, it makes a bigger tear. Don't worry, I'm never going to wear this shirt again. It's okay. (laughs) It's all right. Pretty soon, at the end of the day, all the advice and all the patching that you've tried to do has left you more full of sorrow and deeper in the problems that you had than before. Why? Because your willpower wasn't enough. Because the the list of rules and regulations that you tried to live by to try to restrain the evil and demonstrate the good had no power to change you. You're still the same person. You just got bigger holes. But here's what the gospel does. The gospel does something entirely different. The gospel comes along and it it sees the holes. It sees the sin. It sees the wounds. It sees the brokenness. It identifies them. It lets you know that it identifies them but it never tries to fix you. The gospel doesn't say, well, hey, if you, just, if you just, you know, sew that right here, or if you can't sew, take it to somebody who can, and they'll fix it. You no. Know, the gospel doesn't do that type of assessment. What the gospel says is this, makes a profound claim. It gives us news, good news. The gospel says, I want that. Give me that shirt. I want it. Well, you, you want this? I mean, this is broken. It's, it's useless. Yeah, I want that. Yeah, but I mean, it's all I got. I know, but I want it. You really you want, you want this. Yeah, I want it. Why would, you, why would you want this? Because that's why I came. That's what I exist for. Well, if I give you this, all that I've got, as messed up as it is, as broken as it is, as vulnerable as it is, it's at least something that I can hold to because it's mine, it's what I've got. The gospel says, I know, but I've got something even better for you. I don't have a patch. I don't have advice. I'm not going to give you a list of do's and don'ts that you have to prove yourself. Here's what I have for you. Well, gospel comes out, and I've got something brand new for you. I've got something that you you never thought you deserved. In fact, you don't deserve it. You can never earn it, and I'm never going to ask you to repay me for it. I want to give it to you. Why? Why? Because I paid for it. With every fiber of my being. I crawled up on that cross. I gave my life for you. Not because I was forced to. But because I chose to. What Jesus is saying is. I am the new garment. And What does this process require? Here's what this process requires. That we have to take off. Or allow God to take off. However you want to phrase it. The old garment. And you give it to him. Some have taught that that the gospel just covers your sins, but that's not scriptural because the blood of Jesus did not cover your sins. It washed them away. What's that mean? They don't exist. Past, present, and future. He washed them away. They don't exist. This garment is rendered useless. This is what Jesus came for. This is why he's not concerned with your behavior as a means to be saved. Oh, he will change your behavior. Don't get me wrong. He will get on the inside and change you all kinds of ways. But he wants this first. And when you take this and you give it to him, then he gives you this. It's brand new. I ironed it this morning. brand new garment and he puts it on you and the realization of how good it is comes over you and you say I don't deserve this (laughs) it's nothing that I could have ever chosen for myself or that I would that I just I don't deserve it and that's grace and you know where you need to stay always in that position I don't deserve it I don't qualify for it I'm not I'm not good enough for it and God says you're right you're not but I gave it to you anyway it's like the old song says he knew me yet he loved me. He knew me, yet he loved me. That's the gospel. That's what Jesus is saying to them. And then he, he takes it one step further. He gives them one more analogy, I think just to drive the point home. And he says, and. How many of you, now we're to the wine part. How many of you would take new wine and put it into an old wineskin? He said, you wouldn't even think of that. Because if you do that, and he said, "The, the old wineskin's going to bust open, and then all the new wine is going to be lost, and then the wineskin and the wine are going to be rendered useless, you would never do that. What he's saying is this, "Hey, religion will offer you a brittle life, but the gospel me, I offer you a bigger life." And it's important to understand that they would use goat skin as a, as a way to ferment wine. You would pour the, the wine in, and the, the, the stuff would settle in the bottom, and they would take that wine, they would pour it into another wine skin, and, and then the fermentation process would continue. And what had to happen is, is that skin had to be supple. It had to be flexible to expand in the process of fermentation. And they would do that until they got their finished product. And what would happen is if they didn't use a wine skin for a while, it would lose the flexibility and that supple quality. And if they were to try to reuse it again, the fermenta- fermentation process would bust that skin open and everything would be lost. See, what Jesus is, is doing is, is he's providing for us a visual of the human heart. That the human heart, because of sin, is brittle, is fragile, is frail. And what he's telling these people is, is look, this is what your heart is. Your hearts are brittle. They're fragile and they're frail. And no amount of your system, no amount of you doing what you think is right is going to change your heart. It may make you feel better. It may make you appreciate the person you see in the mirror. But at the end of the day, it's still the same shirt. You're just throwing patches every day all over yourself. I got no interest in patching you. I've got no interest in fixing you. What I have an interest in is giving you my heart. It is giving you my life. What Jesus is saying is, I want to pour new life into you. I am the new wine. I'm the bridegroom. I'm the new garment. And I am the new wine of which you have never tasted before. And I want to pour my life into you, but I can't put my life in your heart because if I do, it cannot facilitate it because the new life of the gospel cannot be facilitated with old religious structures and forms. It can't, it requires a new heart. And a new life. I think it's difficult though to come to terms with the fact that we have braille, fragile, and, and uh, brittle hearts. Why is that difficult? Because you have to fundamentally admit that your way of doing things is not good enough. That your religion, your system of rules and regulations is not good enough to make you good enough for God. That you are not independent of a creator and of a deity, but you are dependent on your creator, on God, on the God of the universe. And that you need him and that your need for him grows and grows and grows. We cannot save ourselves. There is not a list that can be delivered to us that we can fulfill. There was a list delivered. It was called the Ten Commandments. And it is pure and it is holy and it is pristine, but we are incapable of measuring up to it. In fact, here's what the Bible says. If you break one of the commandments, you have broken all of them. I mean, if you lived out nine and you never broke nine, but you broke one of the 10, you are guilty of breaking all of them. God knew when he gave the 10 commandments that no one, no one would be able to live up to those. For if you could, you would never need Jesus. That's what Jesus is saying to them. I'm here. I'm the bridegroom. I'm the new garment, and I'm the new wine. And if you'll just let me, I'll pour my life into you, and I'll give you my heart, and you will never be the same. Maybe you're here this morning, and you say, "You know what, Josh? I don't have a problem admitting that my heart is broken and frail because I'm a Christ follower." I would say to the contrary: you better never say that, because the, the the challenge is this: after you've been walking with the Lord for a little while, you're a Christ follower, you get pretty arrogant. I'm good and I come to church uh, like three out of the four times a month. And when there's five, I'm there four out of the five Sundays. Uh, I give, I serve, I read my Bible like three times a week. Um, Another person, I read mine seven, you know. You just, you start to list all, I'm nice, you know what I mean? I, I, I give poor people uh, food and, and money when I'm in the city. And all those things are good, but none of those things save you. But what you've done is is you've begun to view your relationship with God, your acceptance with God on the basis of your morality. The gospel is not moralism. The gospel did not make you better. The gospel made you live. We were dead in sin. The gospel made us live. You say, well, how... If all those things are not making me saved, then what saves me? It's Jesus. It's grace. You will never move beyond your need of grace. The Bible says that we should grow in the grace of God. You are never in a position to not need the unmerited, unearned favor of God. Because living like that, judging your Christian walk on the basis of what you do and what you don't do, leads to a brittle, fragile, and frail heart. And it takes you further and further away from Jesus. You see, Luke gives us an insight that Mark does not as he concludes his story. Luke chapter 5, verse 39, here's what it says it records Jesus making a statement at the end of his discussion. Jesus says all the same things, and he looks at them and he says this. But you know, those who continue to drink the old wine, they have no desire for the new wine. The old is good enough, they say. See, those who keep drinking of the old wine, they they have no desire for the new wine. The old is good enough, they say. I think what happens is sometimes we become comfortable and we become accustomed and assured of our ability, of our morality, of our behavior. And what happens then is we look from the outside into the celebration and we say, I can't believe that they would allow such scum I can't believe that he or that she would do that that they raise their kids that way can you believe they let their kid do that can you believe they do this can you believe they do that and you start pointing fingers and condemning why because religion condemns and you start giving advice why because religion gives advice and you all the while are just getting a more brittle, fragile, frail heart why because that's all that religion has to offer Religion points a finger, but the gospel extends a hand. Why? Because the gospel celebrates. The gospel is news. The gospel leads to a bigger life because inherent to the gospel is growth. Inherent to the gospel is it will always be changing you in the process. And the more it changes you, the more you realize your need for it and the more reliant you become upon it. My question to you is this. Are you pointing the finger? Are you giving advice? And if you are, why don't you just extend a hand? Because I pose the same question to you that Jesus posed to them. When he said, those who continue to drink of the old, they don't want the new because they say the old is good enough. Really what Jesus is saying is this, is what belief system do you want to prescribe to Do you want to serve a religion of do? do? Go right ahead. You're going to be exhausted. Go right ahead. You're never going to measure up. Or would you rather prescribe to that which is already done? Rather than answering a question, why don't you receive the one that's already been answered for you by grace? It's been done for you. Receive it. Drink the new wine. Wear the new garment and celebrate. And invite others to do that with you. Let me pray for you this morning. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for the opportunity we have to be here this morning. I thank you that we can lift up the name of Jesus. That we can talk about Jesus. Father, I know one thing that when we talk about Jesus, the Holy Spirit starts to work because his job is to reveal the person of Jesus. To champion the person of Jesus in our lives. And I pray for every person. God, whatever they're going through, whatever situation they find themselves in, whatever they would say their heart is, I pray, Holy Spirit, you reveal Jesus to them right now in this moment that they become overwhelmed with the person of Jesus. That the gospel would not be, yeah, I've heard that before, but the gospel would be life to them. That they would never get tired of hearing of the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The good news, it is good news. It'll always be good news. It will never cease to be good news. And I pray that it is good news in their lives. I pray that it is good news within this church. Father, I pray that this is the church that would raise up the person of Jesus because he said, if I be lifted up, I would draw all people unto myself. I thank you, Father, that we are a church that extends a hand rather than points a finger, that we celebrate rather than condemn, that we share good news rather than give advice, Father, that we offer a bigger life and not a brittle life, because we know that without you, we're nothing, but with you, we're everything. If not for the grace of God, where would we be? But because of your grace, we are accepted, we are beloved. We are changed and we are being molded and shaped into the image of you. We thank you, Father. We love you, Jesus. And we pray this in your name. And everybody said, amen. Amen. Before we get out of here this morning, I just want to take a brief moment to talk about Easter and then we'll get you out of here. But Easter's next week, right? We've got three opportunities, 8, 9, 30, and 11. And let me challenge you to do something. I want you to invite somebody or somebodies, more than one person. Hey, more people go to church on Christmas and Easter than any other days throughout the year. We still have a culture that's open to that. Invite somebody, seven out of 10, say they would come if they were personally invited. Here's my challenge to you. Ask the Lord, who do you want me to invite? Who do I need to take a step of faith and just invite family, friend, co-worker? Who do I know that needs Jesus? The Jesus that we've been talking about for the past four weeks. We talk about all the time. Next week, the message is going to be this. Lord, lunatic, or liar? Asking people to make a choice. Lord, lunatic, or liar? or liar. We'll talk about the resurrection and all that good stuff, but we'll talk about Jesus. I want you to take one of these at the info desk and invite somebody, but I want you to ask the Lord, who do you want me to invite? And here's what's going to happen. He's going to put on your heart a burden for somebody and I, you, know, you won't even be able to sleep unless you invite them, right? It's going to mess you all up. You're going to love people like Jesus loves people. So that's what we're going to do. So stand with me. Let me pray over you. Pray over Easter and we'll have a good day. Heavenly Father, we thank you We thank you that we're getting ready to celebrate Easter. The reason, Father, we can be up here is because of your resurrection. You rose again. You put the the paid in full on it. We can celebrate the life of Jesus. I pray over every individual as they ask you, who do you want them to invite that you lay someone specifically on their hearts God a name right now a face right now and the burden of compassion that you have for them will fill this place up to hear the message of Jesus Christ we thank you Father we love you keep us safe provide every need that we have and bring us back safe next week we pray this in the powerful and precious name of Jesus and everybody said Amen